It's time to heed the call of the wild and seek the higher calling. Higher Calling Gulf Coast is the inspirational voice of Gulf Coast fishing and conservation. Hosted by award-winning wildlife journalist, conservationist, and flounder revolutionary, Chester Moore. Be ready for a relentless pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of fishing adventure. Welcome to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. This is Chester Moore. And this is a very requested guest. We had him on back during the freeze in the early part of 2021. We have Dr. David McKee. He is a professor of biology and mariculture and author of Fishes of the Texas Laguna Madre. Welcome back to Higher Calling Gulf Coast. Good to be here. I'm excited to have you here. You know, the, the book's wonderful. You sent me a copy, and I really, really appreciate that. It's such a really neat, natural, and historical look at a, uh iconic part of the Texas coast. I had a lot of fun putting it together and living the life down on Mother Lagoon. So let's just start really from uh, the beginning. Let's say, pretend someone's never heard of Laguna Madre or maybe seen it on a map. Well, uh about 18,000 years ago, the uh, Gulf of Mexico shoreline was about 50 miles eastward of where it is today. Uh, water depth in the Gulf of Mexico at that time was uh, anywhere between 300 and, five feet, 300 and 500 feet lower than it is today uh, because most of the uh, world's water was locked up in ice during that Wisconsin Ice Age. Mm-hmm. Over time, the uh, ice began melting and the uh, sea levels began rising around the world. And about 2,500 years ago, the uh, Gulf of Mexico shoreline stabilized to where it is at its current level. At that time, uh, the sandbars that were farming in the Gulf uh actually ended up farming Padre Island and isolating the Laguna Madre behind the barrier island, Padre mm-hmm. Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one very large, long lagoon uh, stretching from Corpus Christi down to Soto La Marina in Mexico, about 230 miles. Uh, in 1919, a storm came ashore uh, down in the Baffin area and pushed a lot of sand across the Laguna Madre and cut off the Laguna Madre into the upper Laguna Madre and the lower Laguna Madre. Mm-hmm. The upper lagoon uh, ranges from Corpus down to the southern end of the land cut, it's about 47 miles, I think, and the lower Laguna Madre uh, ranges from the south end of the land cut to uh, just south of uh, Port Isabel. So that's kind of a, a general look at the, uh, if you're looking at a map, what you're looking at for the Texas Lagoon, and mm-hmm. excluding the Mexican Lagoon that goes on another 125 miles. Uh, I think we're concerned here primarily with the Texas Lagoon of Madre, the upper lagoon, mm-hmm. the lower lagoon. Yeah, that's uh, that's the focus of the particular podcast. Maybe we'll do another on the Mexican side at some point. But uh, what makes this unique among Texas coastal ecosystems? I mean, in contrasting, you know, uh, a larger bay like Galveston Bay or even some of the like San Antonio Bay. 
Well, the uh, Laguna Madre uh, is uh, considered to be a hypersaline bay, uh, a negative estuary, and by negative it means that more water is evaporating from the bay than is entering the bay through precipitation. Uh, it's a very shallow bay relative to all the other Texas bays. It's uh, upper Laguna averages about two and a half feet deep and the lower Laguna about four and a half feet deep. Uh, because they're so shallow, the uh, seagrasses dominate in the Laguna Madre. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, what is 80% of all the seagrasses in Texas bays occur in the Laguna Madre, upper wow. and lower. Wow. And what's interesting about that is that those two bays only comprise about 20% of the total surface area of all Texas bays. So we've got a very shallow uh, system, two systems, actually, upper Laguna, lower Laguna. Mm -hmm. Uh, What makes them so nice were the seagrasses. In in addition to the seagrasses holding sediment down and not causing turbidity in the water, a lot of that is due to the quartz sands, which are heavier. And, you know, with our 15-mile-an-hour average wind out of the southeast for what is it, 240 days a year, uh, the water stays clear regardless of how uh, much the wind blows or how long it blows, primarily because of the seagrasses holding those heavy quartz sands down and the fact that the heavier quartz sands just don't resuspend like the the lighter sands up in the muds and silts up in uh, your neck of the woods. So yeah, there's such a great contrast between Sabine and Laguna Madre in terms of water clarity on an average day. You know, I mean, we get that 15, 20 mile an hour wind, even if it's kind of clear the day before, it looks like milk chocolate. But down there, I mean, you got the ripple on the water, but you can still see the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, we're very blessed to have what we've got down here, but uh, all in all, we're we're just so blessed to have the the Texas coast and all seven bay systems that we've got. They're all so unique, absolutely so special, and each one is is markedly different from the others. Yeah, it makes a really interesting uh, dynamic as a a wildlife journalist slash outdoor writer of being able to you know learn the ins and outs of all these ecosystems for the different species not only from the fishing side but like even waterfowl hunting that kind of thing yeah i guess if someone knows about the laguna madre outside of the the localized area down there they pretty much probably know about it because of speckled trout because the legendary speckled trout catches in both upper and lower laguna madre uh, what mm-hmm. is it that makes this region so good for catching those extra big trout well, it's that's an often asked question and has been for many, many years. Mm-hmm. But I think condensing it down, it's very much a mullet-dominated bay. There's okay. plenty of mullet. There's lots of them. Uh, and that's always been cited as far back as I can remember of why we've got the fishery that we've got. Mm-hmm. But we've got to remember that those uh, seagrasses uh, are very much like an agricultural field. That's where the productivity is. But in that mix, then we, we've got to add in the worm rocks in Baffin. Mm-hmm. And there's so much growing on those and around those and seagrasses outside those. It's just 
along with the mullet, it's just a really, really fishy bay that tends to produce uh, world book type speckled trout. Are there any prey species that may be, obviously mullet being the dominant, but that may be present in the Laguna Madre system that maybe aren't present in maybe the upper coast or maybe in Louisiana, something that's not as prevalent? Uh, I think, uh, you know, the Menhaden, uh, Shad, uh, those tend to be absent from our part of the coast down mm-hmm. here, and they tend to be kind of replace, uh, replace the mullet as you move up the coast. Uh, you know, we've got our uh, striped mullet here, and you move over to Florida, they've got the white mullet mm-hmm. that serves the same role as just different species. Mm-hmm. Just looking at some of my notes here, but one of the, you'd ask about uh, what made the Laguna so unique. Uh, you know, we've got uh, uh, two, well, on the, on the Texas coast, we've got uh, uh, about 100, 100 miles of Laguna Madre, and uh, it's very, non-friendly to boaters in terms of how much access there is to the to the bay we've got all ranches large ranches on the west side of the lagoon and we've got Padre Island National Seashore on the east side and it it makes it uh, very special in that regard but uh, you, you really got a lot of distance between boat ramps down here to where you can launch yeah you know, that makes sense because uh, pressure, whether that's on the actual resource itself by harvest, incidental, you know, uh, bycatch, that kind of stuff, and also just, you know, damage to seagrass beds, pollution, those kind of things can certainly make it. Yeah. I know if I want to get big fish of any kind, my first thought is always find an area with the least people. Yeah. And we know that that's getting harder and harder to do, Chester. For sure. <laughs> uh, you know, when I when I started fishing the lagoon, and I was kind of late getting down there. I got down there about 1970. And, uh, you know, every boat that went by, you knew who it was. I've, got, I've had a cabin down there uh, about 44 years, I mm-hmm. think. Every boat that went by, you knew who they were, and you knew where they were going to fish. Mm-hmm. And they saw your flag was up at the cabin, so they knew you were there and that where you were going to be fishing. And nobody uh, went to the uh, where the others were going to be fishing. And of course, uh, at night after after uh, all was said and done, everybody started cabin hopping and talking about the day. But uh, pressure was very, very, very low, and you knew everybody that was down there. So move forward. Uh, 50 years, and uh, it's it's a totally different uh, situation. Yeah, it's really interesting. I interviewed someone for the podcast uh, that are tracking the most remote places in America. Uh, One of them's a biologist, the other one does some kind of uh, geographical work, and they're literally just going to try to put their feet on the most remote locations in America. And I thought Texas was a very interesting, because in my mind, I'm immediately thinking, okay, it's going to be in the Trans-Pecos, and it's probably going to be 20 miles from somewhere. Well, the most remote place in Texas was in the Trans-Pecos. It was only six miles, and their qualifications are roads um, and uh, railways and power lines and all that. And they were looking at, you know, Laguna Madre area, South Padre, but because you can drive pretty much the length of South Padre, they disqualified it. 
But kind of getting back to what you're talking about, uh-huh. even the fact that this team was looking at that area down there as compared to most of like the Florida coast, for example, which is really accessible in a lot of ways. So that's a little bit of mystery. Uh, has that allure? Yeah. And you mentioned the fact that that mullet versus the menhaden. I mean, I've never eaten a menhaden, never will eat a menhaden, but I've eaten mullet and it's okay. And I would definitely prefer to eat the mullet if I were them too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, woo. Uh, the first time I went to Florida and they offered mullet, I'm like, like mullet, like I catch in my cast net. And, uh, yeah. and I ate some, it's really good, but I think that's a fascinating impact. We've already just in this brief time together talked about how this unique place has formed so much of the seagrass in Texas, very fertile area, remote area, different prey base. And then all of that has, uh, experienced a very traumatic event, the freeze of 2021. We talked about earlier podcast. You can go back and access um, but really this region and the state of Texas has been hit by many freezes before. And that's very well, uh, noted in your book. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of on the, on the freeze end of things, not to, uh, exclude celebrity kills and mm-hmm. brown tide and, and, and those events, but, mm-hmm. uh, in the freeze events are Cabeza de Vaca, one of the Spanish explorers that, uh, surveyed the Texas coast in the 1500s. He even made mention of a freeze that had had occurred in our area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, freezes have, have come regularly in uh, intervals of, of about every seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this last one was uh, very severe, and I, I uh, thought it was going to be much more severe than it was. Yeah, me too. But, uh, you know, these are things that we, we can't avoid. Uh, they're, they're man-made. Mother taketh away as quickly as she giveth. And uh, just something we're going we're gonna to have to live with. But uh, freezes have been recorded almost every decade, well recorded, since uh, the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think one of the things you we talked about previously was how long does it take a fishery to, to revive mm-hmm. uh, to to pre-freeze levels and uh, I think one of the, these uh, reports that stands out most in my mind is following the 1951 freeze mm-hmm. and it was evidently just devastating uh, but two years later uh Marine biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife made a gill net set down near the land cut uh, right at two years later. And uh, they had in one set, they had two 15-pound trout. Wow. And that's in a biological report that I just uh, reported on. But, uh, you know, these recoveries typically take two to three to five years, depending on how severe they were. But uh, I think everybody's experiencing uh, the trout loss and uh, putting a lot of pressure on redfish up and down the coast. Uh, I wish there were a little more pressure on black drum. I think one of my cohorts here locally once said with uh, biologists with Parks and Wildlife said, everybody that comes to the Laguna Madre to fish ought to have to take back five black drum with them. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, you know, they're just as good eating as a redfish. I love eating black drums. Puppy drum are great uh-huh. to eat. Oh, and such good lion pullers. 
No doubt about it. I kind of grew up catching drum. That was the main saltwater fish I caught other than hardheads growing up, fishing on the white uh-huh. bucket on the side of the road here and out the side of the road in Sabine Lake. But I think it's interesting at this net survey you talked about after that freeze because I did an article um, about, you know, will Texas ever produce another state record trout or a world record trout? And if you look at the freeze of 89, um, Jim Wallace's fish, which broke the record, you know, the first time in modern history in 1996, uh, was only seven years after a freeze. And obviously a fish of that size was at least seven years old and probably older than that. So it probably survived at an early stage in its life, that freeze. The younger of the species are much more tolerant of, of cold, of freezing, freeze death than are the, the older individuals. So, you know, we, we lost a lot of big fish. Hopefully, our younger fish are going to thrive, and uh, you know, in several years, we're going to be producing those uh, larger trout. But I know all all of the guides are saying right now, if you get a a twenty three inch trout down here, you you pretty much got a a, a real trophy. Yeah, I'm and sure. that wasn't the case prior to the freeze. It's been said that bonefish provide us practice, tarpon provide us excitement. The permit provide us humility. But what can we provide them in return for so enriching our lives? Our support for the science behind the fight. Our support for Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Please join us today at BTT.org. These species' well-being depends on it. But what about other activities of man, dredging, um, different things that we're doing, even like non-source point pollution, different things like that? What are some of the, the threats potentially? You mentioned algae blooms. Florida's having a real problem with that in the last few years. That could be potential future threats for the Laguna Madre that maybe we could stand up and do something about. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, all bold and caps, I think it's more boats. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, more people, and where people go, things change. Yeah. Uh, some of the boat dealers uh, 10 years ago were doing everything they could to sell boats during the winter, and uh, now they're selling as many boats in the winter as they are in the summer, mm-hmm. and most all of them are to first-time boat buyers. So I think therein lies the problem with with what we've got, not just in the Laguna Madre, but in bays in general. Mm -hmm. You know, when I I grew up in Senton in in the 1950s and 60s, and in my high school graduating class of 122, and we were only 30 miles from the Gulf and just about 10 miles from the closest bay, there were only two of us in my entire class that fished. Or came from fishing families. Wow. It was quite rare that somebody along the coast uh, fished or had a boat. And, of course, that's all turned around. But uh, I think that's our biggest threat. We're always going to have to deal with freezes and probably brown tides. Uh, water quality in Baffin Bay is a real issue, uh, not only from the creeks that uh, bleed into uh Baffin Bay and Alizan Bay, but uh, a lot of the septic uh, yeah. field that you know, a lot of lot of big population of people around the rim of Baffin Bay now, and before it was just a, an outpost. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think those are the big issues. Yeah, I think it's important to note those issues because you know obviously 
some issues like fishing pressure and things like that. There'll always be debate over that. But for some reason, things like, you know, uh, the non-source point pollution, like just water, water draining down that has agricultural products or, or gas in it. Or look, for example, where I live here in Orange, there's still some people with a septic system is very near our bayou. So there's very bad water pollution in the bayous and we know that those things contribute. So I appreciate you mentioning those for the people out there yeah. uh, that maybe need to be aware of that. Maybe we can do some better things to take better care of that. And you mentioned all the boats. Uh, if you go to Florida, if you fish long in Florida, you're going to see a manatee, which are one of my favorite animals on the entire planet. Got to snorkel with them a few times over the years. Every manatee I've ever seen had prop scars on it. Uh, yeah. Some of them pretty severe. And you think there's only a couple of thousand manatees out there and the chance that they all have multiple prop scars on them shows you the amount of traffic and boats and things that are out there. And uh, it's just be- being better stewards, learning how to better to navigate areas, not being uh, selfish with how we go through these ecosystems and really trying to leave a small imprint, I believe. Yeah. One of the, or I, I belong to two organizations uh, in the uh, uh fishing end of things and one of them is cpa one of the founders of that organization but the other is an organization that was a brainchild of chuck neiser and rockport and uh that organization is flatsworthy Mm -hmm. and uh basically it's it's uh trying to establish it's a coalition that is trying to align the interest of a, a diverse group of water users or anglers or boaters uh, where they all have mutual respect for one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's going to be the answer uh, yeah. to, to a lot of this. It's just education, yeah. you know, um, to, to where, you know, you have, you have a good time from the time you left the boat ramp till the time you get back to the boat ramp. Everybody had a good time, but you know, there's, we're having highway rage uh, on, on our highways and roads, and uh, I, there's a lot of rage uh, on the water. Absolutely. And uh, it's it just got to got to improve, or uh, the whole thing's going to be over for, for what we know it as being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a member of CCA, of course, but also in the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, and uh they're doing a lot of things in their, you know, realm spectrum of working with bonefish tarpon and, and permit. That's their focus. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and a lot of things in Florida, different parts of the world, trying to expand more into Texas on those flats issues, mangrove uh, things. So I think if we all work together and whatever our interest and our passion is, including being better stewards of how we just drive and navigate the waters, it'll be a great thing. But you mentioned having a cabin there. You mentioned, uh, you know, spending a lot of time. Of course, you wrote an amazing book about this ecosystem. Uh, what is your favorite fishing memory of the Laguna Madre? Oh, gosh. Uh, too, too many probably to select out one. But uh, one, one of the, uh, the people that is no longer with us was uh, Louis Peets. He was kind of the, called him the Baron of Baffin. I like and, the uh, Baron of Baffin. He, uh, I remember one day he, he, we, we were all in the same area, all catching big trout, and uh, he'd had about enough of, of the catching and started waving boats in from outside that were sitting out there watching us, telling them how to come in and not screw up things, and they went way wide, came in, anchored deep, walked in shallow, and all started catching 
trout. And these were all uh, 20, 20 up. I think we had some nine pounders on that, that day. But uh, that always stands out uh, not only for the what happened that day in terms of catching fish, but how Pete's wanted these people to come in and enjoy what we were all enjoying. Wow. So that's one of one of many. That's beautiful. One final question, since we've been talking a lot about trout, and this is a trout-centric series. Do you think Laguna Madre has a potential to break the current Bud Roland record trout? I think so. Uh, I really do. If, if we can get through without another freeze for the next six or seven years, I, I, I think that fish could be there. And we, we've got so many pe- people fishing now that know how to fish. They know the spots. Uh, I, I think if we're going to have that, that, say, let's say that 40-inch trout, I think it could, could come from the Lagoon Madre in, in probably the next five years. Wow. So they're just with a bunch of boats to Laguna Madre, but uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but that's it. Enjoying the resource, taking care of the resource. And the one positive you know about when a, there is an interest in a fishery is that there's attention put on that fishery. You know, So hopefully yeah. this, this attention gets people doing the right thing, supporting groups like CCA, you know, Flatsworthy, others, local groups that are wanting to take care of the waterways, the water, and the fisheries. And uh, we salute you as a researcher and a teacher and an author. And if someone wants to get your book, where can they do that online? Well, can just go to Amazon mm-hmm. and uh, or Abe's books. It's it's out there. Uh, I've got two other books as well on fish, but uh, they're they're more like art books. Uh, but I think those would all come up under uh, they would pop up under my name. But Amazon would be a good place to go. One thing I wanted to leave you with, if mm-hmm. I can, a little, we had a, uh, a very famous uh, archaeologist that was in Corpus uh, up until about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made one trip with him. He had done his doctoral dissertation down on the Caracuas on Baffin Bay, mm-hmm. and I spent a couple of days down there with him uh, looking at, he had mapped about 250 campsites around the perimeter wow. of Baffin Bay, and it was it was so revealing what what he was able to to show. But uh, one neat part of that: so many of these Indian campgrounds were littered with oyster shell, hmm. and we know that there are no oysters in the Upper Laguna Madre. Yeah. We do have them in the Lower Laguna Madre but none in the upper Laguna Madre because our salinities are always at or above 40 parts per thousand. Mm -hmm. And what that tells us, those Indians weren't having FedEx or UPS bring their oysters in. They were collecting them locally. So just in a short period of a couple, several hundred years, that base system has changed remarkably from when it had been much, much fresher to now what is very saline and found uh, otoliths in those Indian middens, the old mm-hmm. refuse piles that mm-hmm. they would create that, uh, with croaker that were up, golden croaker, Atlantic croaker, up to about five pounds. Wow. Uh, some really, really neat stuff. And you know the, the white land snails, when it rains, they climb up uh, vegetation and, mm-hmm. you know, they're uh, we found those around some of the campsites that were almost like paved from 
from these uh, snails been collected collected by the women. The men were the hunters, the women were the gatherers, and they would bring in these uh, snails into these campsites. They had deep holes. We found some of them, uh, clay pockets where they would steam these uh, snails. And uh, they had some kind of a curved thorn that they would, once the snails were cooked and steamed, that they would pull those snails out. But it was just really interesting, those days I spent with him and what what we saw down there around Baffin. And uh, one slew that we found had nothing but long bones of wading birds. And about uh, three miles further away up Baffin, we found nothing but the... uh, breast bones and what he proposed and i think is the way it was at night these was would go up in these sloughs these sloughs up around uh rivera cayo de grio they would at night they would pull these long bone wading birds which were probably egrets off of their nest they would come out with them they would rip the breast off leave the long bones there and then take the breast bones back to their camp which is two or three miles away Wow. Very, very interesting. Uh, anyway, that's a little side note there on Baffin Bay, but uh, I had to put that in. No, I love that because that shows that people have been enjoying the resources for a long, long time around that area. Whether they've changed or not, it's been a place where people have gathered. And um, we appreciate your amazing insight, historical insight, and we just thank you so much for coming back on the Higher Calling Always Gulf Coast. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Chester. Keep up the good work. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Higher Calling Gulf Coast with award-winning wildlife journalist and conservationist, Chester Moore. Email him at chester at chestermoore.com. Check out his wildlife writings at highercalling.net and find him at dchestermoore on Instagram.